Welcome to SCD Church's podcast. You can always join us for our live services Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings out in our West Auditorium. You can also tune into our services live online at seacoastchrist.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages. Thanks so much for listening. You know, I, I was thinking about that song because I grew up, obviously, with that song uh, done not quite that well. But I, I remember a preacher getting him saying, you ever get sick and tired of being sick and tired? And, I, and do you ever feel that way? It's just, it's just too much. It's just too much stuff, too much bad, too much whatever. And sometimes you just got to stop and you got to praise God. And you got to remember that God is in control and that whatever's happening around you, God is doing something in you. And you can't live by what's happening around you. You got to live by the story that you and he together are writing in you. And you, it will lift your spirits because God has an outcome. God has a purpose. God has a reason. You don't have to live under the circumstances. You have to live under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Okay, I could almost preach, but I won't because we got things to do here. But you caught me on a good service. I'm just telling you. We're in this, we're in this uh, book of Colossians and, and the series is Under the Influence. And it's, um, it's Paul writing to the believers of Colossae, a city of which he'd, he'd never been. He didn't even, uh, he didn't, they didn't know him personally. But there were some, some false teachers trying to convince the people that Jesus wasn't enough, that they needed more. They needed Jesus and it was the Gnostic. They needed this Gnosticism. Uh, the, the the, Comes from, no, from the word knowledge in the Greek. That they had a special knowledge, a mystery that the, the Christian needed more than just Jesus. They needed this special knowledge. And Paul writes in, 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 uh, to counteract this, no, you need Jesus, period. You need Jesus. You don't need Jesus and some special knowledge. Um, and so he's writing that to them. And he kind of opens himself up and he says, I want you to know who I am and what I'm about and what my MO for life is. And he, it's found in Colossians 1, 24 through 29. It's just a brief passage. But I think it is instructive for us that we look at how Paul lives. At one point, Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. And so in some ways, he was aware that his modeling was important to us in our development as, as Christians. And so... Um, I just want to read these passages. Now rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Paul just crams like so much information in these. These aren't empty words. He's not filling space. Every word seems to have meaning and, and theology behind it. I have become its servant, speaking of the church, uh, by commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. So modeling, let me just give them to you quickly. Um, uh, The first one is he models for us um, what a suffering saint looks like. And Paul is writing this from prison. If you kind of look at Paul's, his, his biography, you'll find that he was shipwrecked, he was beaten, he was bitten, he, he was all scarred up. And, uh, and, and yet, he says an amazing thing right off the bat. He says, now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. 
I rejoice. I am in prison. It's at the very least inconvenient, probably much worse than that. And yet he says, I rejoice. How does one rejoice? He's not rejoicing for suffering. Matter of fact, so much of his writing is about rejoicing, and so much of it was written in prison. He is He's rejoicing, not that he's suffering. He didn't enjoy suffering any more than the rest of us. The truth is that suffering will happen. How do you deal with suffering? He is rejoicing because of the reason he's suffering. He says, I'm suffering for you. In other words, my suffering will benefit you. Now, I'll talk about in a moment who the you is there. It's both the church in, in Colossae, but it's all Christians for all time. Um, I had a, a number of years ago, I had a guy in our church, nice guy, and he had an organ failure. I can't remember which one was, was failing. Um, it was probably pretty important to him, but evidently it wasn't to me because I don't remember which one it was. But, uh, but he, he um, and people were testing all the time and he, he wasn't going to survive unless he found a match and he could get a transplant. And, um, and he kept testing and nobody matched. And then this young man who was a distant relative of his that he'd never met living in the, up in the Northwest, um, who was a Christian, heard about him and tested. And, uh, and he was a match. And it was a distant great nephew or something like that. And came down and they met for the first time. And this young man said, uh, I feel like God wants me to give you a kidney or whatever. I don't remember what it was. And it was just amazing this guy would do this. And I went to visit them. I met with him beforehand and prayed before the surgery. And then I went afterwards a couple of days. And I first went to the young man who donated um, his, his organ. And I said, how are you doing? And he, it was the most amazing thing. He goes, oh, I'm in a lot of pain. But he was smiling. I'm like... He goes, I said, yeah, he goes, but you know what? It's so worth it. I'm so glad I did it. You see, suffering makes sense if it's for a purpose. There is the ability to rejoice even in the midst of suffering if it's going to benefit someone I love, if it's going to benefit someone I care about. By the way, I also talked to the recipient of that organ, and he couldn't talk because he was so overcome with gratitude for this young man that he had never met who saved his life. The reality is that Paul is rejoicing because his suffering, he understands, and it goes to the end of the passage, he understands what his life is about, he understands why he's on this earth, and if suffering is a part of how he is going to benefit others, he's going to fit not only that church, but all of us, then so be it. I will rejoice even in suffering if I get to do what it is God called me to do. Think about Paul. If Paul had not been imprisoned, I'm sure Paul preferred not to be in prison, by the way. I don't know anybody who wants to be in prison. And yet he understood that somehow in God's divine economy that his suffering in prison would benefit others. And when he says you, he was probably meaning the church at Colossae, but think about it, that you includes us. If Paul had never gone to prison, we wouldn't have much of the New Testament. So in God's divine plan, Paul had to suffer. God allowed him to suffer so he'd sit there and write these letters. I'm sure he would much rather, we read it again and again, I'd much rather be with you talking in person, but that wouldn't have done us any good. So God sometimes allows suffering, but if we can understand that he will use that suffering in the end to benefit his kingdom, to help you be who he wants you to be, the impact you're supposed to have, we can manage it with God's help. Suffering happens problem is when we don't let it have a purpose. When we suffer and there's no reason for it, there's no benefit. God even redeems the suffering that we cause ourselves. Some of us have come through addiction. Some of us have gone through all kinds of selfish stuff that, and we cause our own suffering. But in the end, even that selfish 
cause suffering. God will redeem that in the benefit of others. How many times have I been able to introduce someone who has come to the realization that they are under the control, under the influence of alcohol or drugs? How many times have I been able to take them to someone else that I know who has walked that same path and say, I want you to redeem your pain through the redemption of their life? You see, that's what God does for us. And so suffering isn't the unusual thing. Everybody will suffer. The question is, will you allow God to use your suffering to squeeze some redemption for somebody out of that suffering? If you're a theologically kind of oriented person, you may recognize a, what seems to be a problem in this passage. I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. What is lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions? If you're a theological person, you might go, well, is Paul saying that Christ dying on the cross wasn't enough to forgive me and reconcile me to God? Was that not enough? Now Paul has to suffer, and if Paul has to suffer, then everybody has to suffer to get... No, here's what he's saying. He's saying Christ on the cross was enough. It was efficacious. His dying on the cross is the only thing that can reconcile us to God because we've sinned, because we've messed up. But what he is saying is, now that the work has been done, the message has to be spread, and you will suffer if you want to share the message of Jesus. It will be uncomfortable. You might not get put in jail. You might not get bitten and beaten, but you, it will be uncomfortable. Just go to work tomorrow and announce that Jesus is the only way to heaven. Just go say it out loud, right in the lobby. Just, just yell it out. You'll find suffering uh, occurs, right? It doesn't have to be quite as loud or even obnoxious as that. It might just be you living out your faith and your conviction. Someone will say, what is with you? What is up with that? The reality is that suffering will happen. It happens. For us as Christians, it happens for a reason and a purpose if we are living according to God's will. So there are not only suffering saints, but it is, the idea is to suffer for saints so that others can know Jesus better. The second thing we find in verse 25 is I have become its servant, talking about the church, the body of Christ. I have become its servants by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. A couple of thoughts here. Paul often talks about being a servant or being a slave. What he's doing is he is saying to the people of Colossae and to us, and by extension, he is saying, I am not a big deal. I am, and when he uses the word servant, he's talking about like the guy who carried out the chamber pots. <laughs> like think Victorian England, right? If you ever been to a castle or something. The guy who carried out the stuff is like the guy, you know, who got the shortest straw and has to do the nastiest work. Paul is saying, that's my position in the kingdom. I am a servant. That's what I am here for. Therefore, if I am a servant then no matter what God asks me to do, whether it's going to prison or standing up on Mars Hill and arguing with the greatest scholars of the day, I am there for it. I am good for it. Nothing is beneath me and nothing is expected above that. I am a servant. Paul talks again and again about humility. Maybe the most influential, influential Christian outside of Christ. He talks again and again from a place of humility, of being humble, not a place of expectation, not a place of entitlement, I think the learning for us is if we're going to make an impact on the world, we better get rid of any kind of, any kind of entitlement we have. Well, I deserve better than this. No, you and I deserve, we deserve something other than what we're getting by grace. We deserve to be separated from God forever, but because of Jesus' grace, we're getting something else. I'm getting a life that is better than I deserve. I better not walk around feeling upset or angry at people because I'm not getting what I deserve. I'm glad I'm not getting what I deserve. I'm glad of that. That's the starting place every day. I'm glad I'm not getting what I deserve. 
And when we start with that place of true humility, just, I, you know, I, well, do I have a poor self-esteem? No, no, I, that's not what I struggle with. Right? But if I can start every day humbly before God, remembering that I am saved by grace through no merit or works of my own, then anything that happens today, it's all gravy. It's a gift from God. I'm good. The problem is that we can't often do that. We can't always do that, it seems. But we need to remember that we are servants. And what do servants do? They serve. They serve. We are called to serve. Saying, well, you're a pastor, you have a calling. This word commissioned, it means a call. It's not just true of pastors or apostles. It is true of all of us. When we are reconciled to God by God's grace, through no merit of our, we're reconciled to God, then God not only says, you are welcome into my family, but I have a spot for you. I have a place. I have a place on the team for you in my redemptive plan of bringing millions to salvation who will someday spend eternity with me in heaven. I have a spot for you to play, a place for you to play that's unique to you. And so it's not enough to just kind of get your foot in the door and say, I'm going to heaven. It is, what do I do on Because the, the funnest part of Christianity is not just the anticipation of heaven. It's the watching others' lives be affected by what God is doing in your own life. That's the powerful thing. That's why you can humble yourself. You can, you can do it because you get to see God doing stuff. You see God's hand at work. He says, I've been commissioned. I am a servant, but I have been commissioned. I am a part of God's divine plan. And if I'm part of God's divine plan, then God has divine appointments for me. God has tasks for me. So here's how we tend to go through life. We tend to go through life saying, I'll get mine. I will get mine. On the job, I'll get mine. In my relationships, I I will get what I need. I I will get and, and God says, no, 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 I have given, and now you get to give. You have received, now give. It'll change the way you see your life. If I see my life not as this, I've got to get it today, I've got to get mine today, I've got to, I've got to do this today, you get up in the morning and say, God, you gave me another day with breath, and I am your servant, so what are you going to put in front of me today? I'm going to go to work. I'm going to love my family. But I sense that today you have some divine appointments for me. Help me see them when they're there. Help me step into them by your grace and the power of your Holy Spirit. What a great adventure. If that's the way we think about us, because that's the way Paul, I can imagine Paul waking up going, all right, today I got to write a letter to, uh, to, to Colossae and I got to witness to the soldier next to me. That's my day. Nothing else. I don't have to impress anybody. I don't have to go on social media. I don't have to post. I don't have to take pictures that make me look good. <laughs> I just have to be on this adventure with him today. How would that change the way you live? How you do errands? How would that change if everywhere you went, you just realized I'm, a, I'm on a mission from God, really? Unlike the Blues Brothers, it's an actual mission. Anybody get that? Anybody my age? Okay, good. One of the great things about being a pastor is I get to know a lot of people. One of the hard things about being a pastor is I live in the same community as all those people. And sometimes they see me drive. Yeah. I was driving down Lampson one day, you know Lampson? And there was the two old ladies. And if you were one of them and I just called you old, I'm sorry. But And these two old ladies are not doing the speed limit. They're not even doing half the speed limit. And my sanctification is draining out quickly. And the first minute I got, I hit the gas. 
and was by them. And then later he drives and looks at her friend and goes, who was that in that truck? And she goes, oh, that was my pastor. <laughs> Next Sunday, a lady walks up to me and goes, uh, were you driving on lamps the other day? I said, yes. And she told me the story. And I said, and what church do you go to? She said, you're a church pastor. It wasn't long after that. I was, it was probably around Christmas time. Don't go in parking lots at Christmas. You'll lose your faith. And, uh, and I remember, as, I know exactly where I was. I know exactly. I'm, and I, there is somebody, again, driving inappropriately. <laughs> if you people would just drive better, my Christianity would be easier. I'm just telling you right now. <laughs> I pull up behind this car, and they're just poking. I mean, just, I, they're not even idling. They, I don't know what they were doing. And my hand is raised, and I'm about to, not a gentle little peep, I was going to inform them how badly they were driving. And I went to push the horn, and I got close enough to see a bumper sticker. Do you know the Holy Spirit can speak through bumper stickers? I don't know if you know that or not. <laughs> and just as I'm ready to press the horn, I read the bumper says, it says, honest to goodness, I, uh, have you hugged your pastor today? <laughs> You talk about a rebuke from the Holy Spirit, man. <laughs> my problem was I'm going to hurry to get somewhere, and you people are in my way. <laughs> I think we live our lives that way. I think we're in a hurry to get somewhere, and God's going, where do you think you're going? I've got this divine appointment and that divine appointment, and, and it might be with your five-year-old grandson who just needs a hug today. It, that's a divine appointment. It, it might be sharing the gospel as one whose life's going to be changed forever. It's a divine appointment, but you're so busy honking your horn and trying to get around him, you miss it. Life is about you, isn't it? When it's supposed to be about him. See, that's what Paul understood. That's what we can learn. We can spend the rest of our lives learning that my life is about him and his agenda and his kingdom. And to the degree that my agenda interferes with that, it needs to be thrown away and aside. Paul understood that. But how do you get there? How do you, ugh, I try so hard. I, I, here's what's really interesting. He says this in verse 26 and 27. The mystery that has been kept, by the way, remember the Gnostics had all these mysteries. He said, no, there's only one mystery. It was kept throughout, throughout history up until Jesus. He goes on, he says, it's a mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but now is disclosed to the Lord's people. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of the, this mystery which is Christ in you. How do you get from that self-generated agenda, that thing that causes you to honk the horn all the time, over to this place where I'm on a mission, an adventure with God, and I'm aware of the opportunities he puts in front of me. I respond to them in a Christ-like manner because of Christ in me. Little kids say, oh, I've got Jesus in my heart. And they go, oh, that's so cute. Listen to this, though. Listen to what it says here. In Ephesians 3.16, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. It's not just for little kids. John 14, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My father will love them and he will come to them and make our, and make our home with them. There is this mysterious thing in which when we come to accept Christ as the one who forgives us, the, <coughs> excuse me, the one who paid the price so that we could be reconciled to God, when we accept him, since he went to heaven in the ascension, he now lives in us somehow. 
And it is not we ourselves who try to do better and white knuckle our way to be like Jesus. We just allow him and his life to become more and more the, the primary factor, the determining direction of our life. You say, well, I don't even know what that looks like. I'm not sure I do either. But let me give you a couple of hints. What if life isn't holding on, trying to get down that freeway of life? What if it's this wonderful adventure of listening to God every day and just doing what he calls you to do? What if there is this this way to become more and more aware of his presence in your life and his direction in your life? I get up in the morning and I have this sense I should should be thankful for the sunrise I'm seeing. Maybe that's a prompt from God to praise him because I need to start my day with praise. What if I, I sit down in my prayer time and there is this thought that, you know, I really messed up. I spoke harshly to that person with a really bad, I need to address that. What if that is God prompting you to not only make amends to that person, but to grow in your character by admitting your own selfishness? What if that is Christ in you, moving you toward wholeness and healing and hope and character? What if you see someone who is struggling and inside you want to judge them, but there's this other prompting to not say they deserve it, but to say, regardless of how they got there, maybe I can be of help. Maybe that's Christ in you, moving you forward in this great adventure as a part of his redemptive plan. You see, Paul saw his life. He saw his suffering. He saw all of it as a part of what God was doing in him and through him for our benefit. I guess my question today is, what is God doing in you and through you for the benefit of the body of Christ? Some of us think, well, if I'm going to heaven, I'm good, but you're missing the funnest part. You're missing the part where you get to be a part of the plan. And God's got this plan. It's all going to come together. He goes on and he says this. He says in verse 28, He, being Jesus, is the one we proclaim, admonish, teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. Some translations say perfect in Christ. What is he saying? He's saying the point of my life is to do whatever God asks me to do so that others can arrive in heaven. There's a couple things, by the way. Mature. It's to be more like Jesus. As we recognize Christ in us, working in us, our behavior, our attitudes become more like Jesus. But there's a second part of meaning in this in the original language. It says not only to arrive becoming more like Jesus, but to arrive having accomplished like Jesus did on the cross when he said it is finished, to arrive having accomplished our work on earth. You can't do God's work on your own because you don't even know what it is, much less are able to step into it. What happens as we listen to the Holy Spirit speak to us daily, we not only grow to be more like Jesus, we accomplish what he intends us to accomplish so that when we arrive, we, like Jesus, can say, it is finished. I don't have to die on the cross, but I did have to love my wife. I had to love my kids. I have to witness the goodness of God to my neighbors, my coworkers. Those are the reasons he had me on this earth until this time. And now that it is finished, I can stand before God and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. The point of life is not to accumulate cars, to build, get bigger houses, to make more money. Fine if that happens. The point of life is to someday arrive having finished the purpose for which you were placed here. And to hear God say, well done, good and faithful servant. When we start to live for that goal, 
for that purpose, life starts to get fun. It starts to get exciting. You start to begin to see God's hand at work, not only in your own development, but in others as they move toward this knowing Jesus and living in obedience to him. Today, I don't know what three words, four words you came up with to describe your relationship with Jesus, but I hope it reflects this lifelong journey of becoming like him and fulfilling his mission for you in your life. Paul did that. Paul did that. And as such, he's a great model for us. This week, be mindful of Christ in you every day and live differently. Let's pray. Lord God, we love you so much. We thank you for saints like Paul who went ahead and, and who, who served you well. But their story is not our story. Our story is unique. Our salvation is common in that we all need Jesus and what he did on the the cross to be reconciled to God and to be forgiven. But our story, the way we live out our salvation, the way we impact the world is unique to every single person here. Lord, never let us settle for just the things that feel good or are comfortable or are easy. Let us always be listening to your voice leading us into this great adventure of impact. And even in those times that are hard, that we don't understand why, that feel like suffering. Let us give them to you knowing that your outcomes will be honoring to you and will be what we'd hoped for all along. So Lord God, let us live in light of your love, in light of your goodness, walking in obedience to you and impacting a world for you. And in this, we too can say like Paul, we have great joy. Let us live that way. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you guys for being here. God bless you. We hope you enjoyed this message, and remember, we also have live services out in our West Auditorium on Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings. Or you can always join us live online at seacoastgrace.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages to hear these messages in real time.